You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Thank you, John. Good evening. Good to see you. Welcome to Mercy View. Uh, my name is Brad, one of the pastors here, and um, if you're visiting with us tonight, we're so honored that you have joined us, grateful that you have chosen to hang out with us on this Thanksgiving weekend. Um, if you're joining us online, we want to welcome you there as well. We miss you. Uh, we hope that in due time, you'll be able to join us again soon, understand for a variety of reasons why uh, many aren't able to come and hang out with us, but uh, we miss you and look forward to seeing you soon. Uh, I read a story this week uh, about a man named Jay Spates. And Jay uh, and his family had been trying to like, hunt down their lineage. They were trying to figure out uh, who their ancestors were. And so uh, he, he happened to be an African American. And so they looked, uh, began to look in, in, in sort of like um, really far back, like even from Africa, like where did their lineage really come from? And uh, he took a test, and you guys, some of you have taken these tests before. He happened to take a, like an ancestry DNA test, and he got the results back, and um, he found out that he actually had a cousin living, a distant cousin, but living in a small Western African country called uh, Benin. And on a whim, just because he was interested, he he thought, I'm going to actually um, uh, put this into another database that uh, was specifically for African Americans and, and find out if there's any more to this. And, and within minutes, he made an accidental discovery. He found out that he had royal DNA. Now, can you imagine this in your own life, like you're taking a test and you find out that you actually come from royalty. This is... Jay's story, he finds out that he comes from royal DNA. He learned that he was a descendant of a king uh, named Decca, the ninth king of Alada, which is a state in central Benin that was home to West Africa's largest uh, slave port. And what's significant about this is that when Spates finds this information out, he's just a dude, right? I mean, he happened to be a priest. Uh, at the time, he, he lived in an apartment in New Jersey, and he didn't even own a car. So naturally, he's interested. He tries to reach out to the royalty in this country, and he, he's able to get in touch with the king, the current king of Benin. And the king invites him to come and hang out in their country. So he gets on a plane. He, he goes over to this country. And, and, and he, as he's starting to land and look out uh, at, the, at the airport, he notices there's like a small festival happening. There are people dancing. There are people singing, playing instruments. And it took him several minutes to realize what was going on. He realized that the welcome party was for him. See, he had been given a, a new name because he was now considered a prince in this country now. He was given a name that meant the child who came back. See, he thought that he was going to just take a simple ancestry test 
and find out maybe where his relatives uh, had come from, his ancestors had come from. But what he ended up finding out was that he actually had royal DNA. And, and then he goes to this country. He thinks he's just going to hang out there with the family, do some sightseeing. But instead, he's crowned prince. To be a royal means that you become a part of something that is revered, something that is favored, right? To become a part of a royal family, you're crowned, not in, uh, because of anything that you have done, but just because you're a part of that family. You're given a new name. And I don't know what you think about royalty. Uh, some of us here in the States maybe have a love-hate relationship with that. If you go to a place like the UK, that's exactly what you're going to find for the most part. The royal family is revered. They are, are loved. They are admired. They are appreciated. And I actually think one of the things that happens for us as we think about this idea of royalty, we kind of like that idea because we want the same thing, really. If we're honest, we want to be admired. We want to be loved. We want to be a part of, of, of a family, of a group of people who are, are favored and revered. We want to be significant. We want to be important. The question for us tonight is, is that even possible? And is that a worthy pursuit? We are in a series uh, that is going to take us all the way through the Christmas season. Uh, it's a series that is all about the, really what is at the very heart of Christmas. Uh, we are looking at a handful of passages about the incarnation of Jesus, this amazing miracle of the incarnation that the series is called incarnate and what we're looking at in this series is a handful of passages where we see God the Father sending his son Jesus the God man from the culture of heaven into the culture of man to be the perfect and once and for all sacrifice for sin in this world and as we've said uh, in this series so far that, yes, this idea of the incarnation is a deeply theological and doctrinal idea. The point of this series isn't to puff ourselves up with more knowledge. It's not to grow just in our theological understanding, although I'm going to make a case tonight that that actually is a part of what helps us grow in the gospel. But, but actually what our hope is that comes out of this series is that you grow in deeper worship of the incarnate one, Jesus. So this is a series both for the head and for the heart. And if you have your Bible with you, keep it open to Galatians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this evening. And as we step into this passage, I want to invite you to see two things. First, the incarnation secures adoption into a spiritual family. The incarnation secures adoption into a spiritual family. And then second, the incarnation secures an experience of our adoption through the Spirit. Let me just say that again. The incarnation secures an experience of our adoption through the Spirit. So if you would look with me there beginning in verse 4 of Galatians 4, that's where we're going to begin tonight. And what you're going to see here at the very beginning of our passage that we're looking at here in verse 4, we have here the first of two activities in our passage within the Godhead, within the Trinity, within the, uh, the triune God. And, and we have 
two sendings in particular of God. And the first one is here in verse 4. Look there, it says that God sent forth who? His Son. And here we see right off the bat in verse 4 uh, uh, the, the early appearance of this doctrine, this theology of the incarnation, God sending his son. That is the simplest definition that we could even give for the incarnation. God then, it says here, sends his son into what though? Into the world, right? That's again the incarnation of Jesus. And when did Jesus do that? He did it when the fullness of time had come, which is to say that God in his providence, in his sovereignty, sent his son at a moment in human history which he had preordained. And then it tells us why. It was, this happened because the son uh, came to redeem the world, as it says in verse 5. And actually it goes on to tell us why Jesus came to redeem the world there in verse 5, that we might receive adoption as sons. And whenever you see the word sons uh, in the New Testament... You can always just assume that uh, the writer, Paul, is talking to, to men and women. And, and so you could even just say sons and daughters here. Now in the NIV, there is a little footnote uh, that does a lot of heavy lifting for us uh, in verse 5. When Paul says sons, he is actually indicating the idea, something called sonship. And what is that? Sonship uh, is really this idea that in Roman times, it was a legal term that referred to the full legal standing of an adopted male heir in Roman culture. Here, here's what that means. Um, if you were a, a wealthy Roman man and you were getting up in years and you had a, a son and you passed away, your, uh, all of your stuff would go to your, your oldest son, your inheritance. But if you were an older, wealthy Roman man and you did not have children, you could legally adopt a son, which in essence meant that you were adopting an heir. And when the legal papers went through, in, in a moment, that person, that son, now could be that man's heir, even if they weren't blood relatives. That is the picture of adoption that Paul has in view here. When you are adopted spiritually, you are grafted into God's family. You become his spiritual son or his spiritual daughter. You become a co-heir with Jesus, which means everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. It says it so well there in verse 7. Look there again. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Paul is describing this, this graftedness into God's spiritual family. This is the first thing that I want to invite you to see this evening. The incarnation secures adoption into a spiritual family. Here's why I think this is so meaningful. Some of you uh, have felt this intimately over this Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, maybe your father is no longer with you. Uh, maybe even if he has passed when he was alive, you had a pretty chilly relationship with him. Maybe your father is still alive and, and you just don't get along with him at all. Maybe your father is completely out of the picture. He's alive, but he's out of the picture in your life. I, I, I know this is true because I know some of your stories. I know my own story. 
many of us here tonight would likely describe our relationship with our fathers as challenging, if not dysfunctional. In Genesis 3, one of the things that we see as a result of the fall is a breakdown of relationships, right? Adam and Eve start blaming one another. There's, there, is, um, uh, there is like this sense of, uh, I, I don't trust you anymore. There is like this, uh, this sort of like uh, suspicion uh, that the other person isn't worthy to, to be trusted. And, and there is shame that, that comes into this as well in relationships. And our relationships with our fathers are no different. See, on this side of Genesis 3, it should really actually come to no surprise that our earthly relationships with our fathers are sometimes filled with strife and contention and discord. That is the brokenness of Genesis 3 that continues to to, uh, be just true for us in the world that we live in even today. Many of you feel tension in how to even relate to your fathers because of that reality. You might love your dad, but he has disappointed you. Uh, you, you appreciate your, your dad, but he has been cold emotionally to you. Like you may care for your dad, but, but he has not been kind to you or compassionate to you in places where you needed that. And this has left you with a wound, a father wound that is deep. I heard someone say this recently, um, as an adult, uh, you have to sometimes grieve the loss of your dad ever being your dad. And now, as an adult, you also have to decide if you want a friendship with him. That is a difficult and complicated idea. And the reality for many of us means that what we do because of our complicated relationships with our fathers, we have a tendency to impose that same kind of of, of, of feeling and, and thought, that brokenness, that damaged relationship, that, that imperfect relationship on God. This is a big part of my story and my relationship with God. I still struggle to not think of God, Father God, like I think of my earthly father sometimes. Here is the good news of Galatians 4, for me and for you, if you have a, a, a difficult uh, father-child relationship, where you were once spiritually fatherless, spiritually orphaned, through the incarnation of Jesus, you can now be brought into a spiritual family through the adoption of a father who is always good, always kind, And always loving. This is a father who will never leave you. This is a father who will never lash out at you. This is a father who will never ignore you. Ephesians 1 tells us that God purposely uh, purposefully chose to adopt each of us, his children, before the foundations of the earth were even laid. Friends, do you hear what that means? Though your God, who was all-sufficient in himself, 
he experienced perfect community and relationship and friendship with the other people in the, in the Trinity, the other uh, God, the Father, Jesus the Son, Holy Spirit, perfect community. Though Jesus could have stayed in that perfect community, God, who was also all-sufficient, sent his son Jesus to rescue you and to bring you into a spiritual family so that you can be reconciled back to a loving God who will never ignore you, leave you, or lash out at you. God didn't need us for anything, but he gladly chose to set his love and mercy on you through the, 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 the incarnation of his son, Jesus. Friends, you, you may never get back the father you want or, or have the father that you have lost. But if you place your faith and trust in this Jesus, you can gain through Jesus' perfect life and death another father who will father you with unconditional love and kindness. A father who promises to never leave you. A father who promises to never forsake you. The incarnation secures an adoption into a spiritual family. Now, if you would look with me, if you would, down at verse 6. Here is actually where we begin to see the second activity within the Godhead, a second sending of God. In the first sending, God sends his Son Right, we just said this is at the very center of the doctrine of the incarnation. It's what it sits at the very heart of, of the Christmas season, the God-man coming from outside of time and space into our time and space to bring adoption and to bring redemption. But in the second sending, notice that God sends something else. Look there. It says that he sends the Spirit. And here's what it says. Look at verse 6 again. It says, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I love this so much. It's, it's not just the Spirit. It's the Spirit of the Son. I don't know if you've ever thought about the Holy Spirit being the Spirit of the Son. Again, this is a beautiful, like, Trinitarian kind of idea. This Spirit is the Spirit of the Son, the, the same son that calls his father Abba, we are given the spirit of that son so that we can call Father God our daddy, our father. But I want you to notice something. Where was the son sent into the world? In the incarnation, right? He was sent into the world via the incarnation. But the spirit of the son is sent where? Into our hearts. So the sending of the Spirit is actually not what we just talked about, which is more of an objective status of sonship, but the sending of the Spirit is uh, meant to make us sons and daughters experience the adoptive love of God. Listen, the Son is meant to make us sons and daughters, but the Spirit's job is to help us feel like sons and daughters. Are you with me? Does that make sense, right? So um, the incarnation is still in play here as we talk about this second sending, though. In our timeline, 
The sending of the Spirit comes after the sending of Jesus. So the objective truth of the incarnation is a prerequisite to a subjective experience of the redeeming love of God. Jesus is sent so that we can be adopted, and then the Spirit is sent so that we can experience that adoption. Here's the second thing I want to invite you to see this evening. The incarnation secures an experience of our adoption through the Spirit. Why is this important? Well, I think many Christians, I know that I have dealt with this over my life, go through moments or really maybe even long periods of times where you experience that something that theologian, author, and pastor Sinclair Ferguson calls a prodigal suspicion of God. In the story of the prodigal son, you guys, most of you probably know that in Luke 15, uh, Trey uh, taught on that this past summer as we looked at the parables in, in Luke. You remember the prodigal comes back to the father, and after being away, after squandering his inheritance, comes back to his father, and what does he say to his dad? He, he basically says, dad, just give me another shot. Let me try to clean up my life. I, I'm actually not asking for a whole lot. Uh, just, just my daily bread. You can treat me like a servant. But Ferguson says that this sort of response that the prodigal had to his father is a fundamental misunderstanding of the love of his father. And, and obviously, as we think about this in relation to God, this story is meant to point us to um, the way that God loves. And so, in a, in a way, this story also is pointing to the way that you and I have a fun, fundamental misunderstanding of the love of God. When the prodigal son comes to the father and says, I'm not worthy, that sounds humble. But what he's really saying is, I don't know if after all I've done, you're generous enough to allow me to be your son anymore. That's not humility. That's actually a misjudgment that he's making about his dad. What the prodigal believes is that the father doesn't want to be generous with his love. So he asks very little. He doesn't see his father as a loving, generous father, but rather a boss, right? He assumes that his status as a son is not available to him anymore. He has the mindset of a hired servant. Like he literally thinks both of those things. It was part of his pre-planned speech to give to his dad. In Luke 15 verse 19, he rehearses his speech and he's planning on saying, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, dad. Just treat me like one of your hired servants. Um, when I was uh, late in my senior year of high school, um, I was planning on going to a college for all the wrong reasons, and I had a moment of, of just like uh, conviction about that and felt like I needed to go somewhere else. And I actually didn't know where that would be. I just knew it, it didn't need to be the place I was headed, and I knew my first step was to talk to my dad about it. And this was during the day, so he was at work. He was a data processing uh, manager for the county that we lived in, computer guy. And uh, I, I knew that I needed to go tell him what was going on. But if I'm honest with you, I was really nervous about that. 
I assumed that he would be mad at me because I had changed my mind at the 11th hour. So I was prepared for that. I was preparing for that. And as I walked into his office and sat down with him, I didn't know anything else to do but just to be really honest with him and just say what I just said to you. Like, um, Dad, I, I don't think I should go to this college that I, I thought I wanted to go to, and here's why. And after I did my little pre-planned speech with him, there was this moment of silence. And I thought, man, here it comes. He, he is just going to come down on me and say, how could you do this at this last second? We've, you know, all the paperwork is in. We paid all the application fees and all that stuff. And after a short pause, he looked at me. And the next thing that he said to me um, was a picture of Galatians 4.6 for me. He looked at me and he said, well, let's make a plan. And I was so relieved and so blessed by his response to me. In that moment, I realized I had the wrong view of my dad going into that office that day. My dad was ready to be benevolent. He was ready to be kind. He was ready to be generous and help me. And serve me, but my view of him heading into that office was one of, of this, is a, this is a boss. I, I'm just a, a servant. And if he needs to come down on me, he can, because that's what bosses can do. <laughs> but here's why this is a picture of, of Galatians 4, 6 for me. In the prodigal son story, when, when the father kisses and embraces his son... That is a picture of what Paul is talking about here in Galatians 4, 6. It's a, uh, what I experienced with my dad in his office is a picture of what Paul is talking about here in Galatians 4, 6. It's one thing for a father to be looking for his son, and that's a big deal. Like, for whatever reason in that story, the prodigal son story, the father noticed when his son finally came back, that means he was looking for him. It's another thing to have had compassion on him. That's a big deal too. He wasn't thinking of himself. He saw his wayward son and his heart went out to him. But to embrace his son and to kiss his son, the father wanted his son to experience the love that he had for him. When my dad said, let's make a plan, though he may have not realized it, what he was saying to me is, Brad, I want you to know that I love you. I want you to sense and feel that I love you. Friends, that is what God did in sending the spirit of the Son into our hearts to to help us feel, to help us sense the objective truth of adoption. The sending of of the Spirit, of the Son, into our hearts is the Father's kiss. It is the Father's embrace. We are talking about something here that is in addition to the objective fact of our sonship. Like some of you here tonight believe intellectually, conceptually, that God loves you. I've said it already tonight in in a few different ways to you. You've heard it preached and taught in other places. You've read it in the Bible. You've heard it before. But, But you don't know that God loves you. You haven't experienced the love of God. You haven't experienced the adoption of God. 
See, there's a way that you can be adopted and you can know that you're adopted and never have experienced it. You can actually be completely accepted and not live that way and experience it, not feel it. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It just means that there is something that's keeping you from uh, experiencing the adoptive love of God in, in your life. Um, some of you here tonight, what's in the way is sin of some kind. And um, here's why I want to say that the, the thing that sometimes gets in the way of us experiencing God is our own doing. But here's what happens. We look inside of us and we know that we don't measure up. We look at the sin that is in us and what we begin to do is we define ourselves by our sin. And because we define ourselves by our our sin, um, we think that that disqualifies us from God's grace. For some of you, there are deep and dark and difficult patterns of sin that you just can't seem to get rid of. And because of this, you have convinced yourself that you have outrun God's grace. But here is what happens in that scenario. You have let sin define your relationship with God rather than letting God define his relationship with you through his love. You've let your emotions determine your position with God rather than his grace. Friends, God intends for you to sense in your heart that you are loved by him. So, if you find yourself in a place tonight where you feel defeated, where you feel crushed, overcome by your sin, maybe it's, it's anger, maybe you're just a really angry person, maybe it's uh, envy, maybe you're a very greedy person, maybe it is the issue of, uh, of lust, um, honestly, any kind of idolatry of any kind which is taking something that's good and making it great in our lives is also something that gets in the way of, of, of us experiencing the love of God. And, 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 you know, we can make idols out of anything, a relationship or, or technology or success or approval. We're, we're seeing the idol of politics just overtake some people right now. What do you do whenever you know that there's something in the way of you being able to experience the love of God? How can you experience and sense and feel the adoptive love in God? Friends, how you answer that question is so important. If you answer it like the prodigal son, you're going to ask too little. Notice what it says there in the very beginning of verse 6. Because your sons and daughters... Whenever you see the word because in the scriptures, particularly at the beginning of a verse, it means that everything that was just said, is it, there's a tie between that and what's being said now. So here's what this means. We said this earlier. The Spirit comes on the basis of the work of Jesus. The Spirit of adoption is available to you because of the work of Jesus. It is what makes you sons and daughters. So for you to experience, for you to sense For you to feel the adoptive grace of God, you have to meditate on who Jesus is. You have to meditate on what he has done. You have to take the objective truth deep into your heart and let it marinate. 
Now you might say, Brad, are you, you saying I just need to like think about it more? I need to like uh, just reflect on it, consider it. Uh, in, in one sense, yes, but I, I'm, I'm actually encouraging you to do something much more intentional and purposeful. Because some of you are like, I haven't experienced anything like that, Brad. Let me ask you something. Do you pray? And in your prayers, are you persistent? You see, you can, you can cry out as you're praying or reading the scripture and say, Lord, show me yourself. I need you. Without you, I am nothing. And as you're doing this, and I can speak from personal relationship, uh, personal experience here in, in my relationship with God, the Spirit will show up. Yes, it is a supernatural work. Don't be afraid of it. God intends for you to sense His love. And the way that He comes to us is as we gaze upon the cross, we begin to get a sense of his love for us and it begins to transform us and change us deeply. It's not just an objective truth anymore. It becomes a subjective experience that is changing us. That's the reason why as you praise him on the basis of his word, if you go to the objective truth and you praise him, the spirit of God will come crying and help you cry, Abba, Father. Friends, what is amazing is that this is available to us. The question is, will we open our hearts up to it? It's one thing for God to forgive sinners. That's a massive thing, but it's one thing for God to forgive us. Friends, it is another thing entirely for him to adopt us into his family. Yet that's what this passage teaches us. And it's all possible because Jesus became a man. He put on flesh, dwelt among us, not only so that we would be forgiven and redeemed, but that we would be adopted. And then God, because he has such generosity towards us, says, I want you to know the adoptive love of uh, my adoptive love. And so I'm going to send the spirit of the son into your hearts, the center of your being, and I am going to crown you with my love. I am going to give you a new name. I'm going to make you co-heirs with Jesus. Earlier we asked this question, where do we get the admiration and the, the, the appreciation that we want? Where do we find our significance and our importance? Friends, if you're a Christian, it comes from knowing that Jesus is your father, that he's your dad. And that he loves you and he came to redeem you and to forgive you. And through his work, be reconciled back to God so that you can cry out to Father God, Abba, Father, Daddy. It's amazing that this is even available to us, but friends, it is. What a gift. What a gift. Adoption into the spiritual family of God. Let's pray together.